Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited-time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. It took me a while to, to compute, you know. Everybody in, in, in America in, in a small town situation is probably the same. You know, you think like, that's not something that happens and this is, this is crazy. Like two people, really? Like we both know them. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fianick. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter. And today we have something really special for you. Something that we haven't done in a while. And that is a two-part episode. I can't even remember the last time we did a two-parter. Can you? I can't. And you know what? We used to do them all the time. I know. And people love them or sometimes (laughs) we get irritated because then it's like they have to live with a cliffhanger. Yeah. But for those of you who are worried about that, we have come up with kind of a solution. Oh yeah. If you if you can't wait for part 2, you can't wait a week for part 2. So that solution is if you join our Patreon, you can get part 2 of this episode right away. You can binge the whole thing in one sitting, and that's what we're going to start doing for our, our multi-part episodes moving forward because I think we should start doing them again because people love a deep dive into a case. People do love a deep dive and that's what we have for you today. So yes, as soon as Part one is out. If you're on our Patreon, we're dropping both part one and part two at the same time. So you can go seamlessly from one to the next, not have to re-listen to the end the next week. So if that's your thing, if you can't live in the suspense, now you have an option. But that's the best we can do. <laughs> yeah, that's the best we can do. And also, there is obviously so much bonus content for you over there. One new episode of a true crime story every single week, plus video content of all of our Killing Time episodes. So there's a lot for you over there. And exclusive merch. If that's your thing. And exclusive merch. Yes, of course. We have our uh, Firsty Underground Patreon t-shirt that only our Patreon members can access. So yep. lots of stuff over there for you. So before we get into the episode, I have to go into the day today. And uh, it's my day because it is National Only Child Day. Really? It is my day today. Wow. Oh, it, I need to obviously tell you the date. It's April 12th, National Only Child Day. Okay. Well, at least... I mean, the whole your whole parents' lives revolve around you. Why not have a whole extra day? Why not have a day of celebration? It's also International Day of Pink. And speaking of, I just saw the new Barbie trailer, and I'm really excited for whatever this movie is going to end up being because I think it might be kind of twisted and weird and Wizard of Ozzy from what I'm seeing. I can't wait, and I love that they're all named Ken. 
I know. In the commercial. It's like, and Barbie. Hey, Ken. Hi, Ken. And then I was like, oh, they're all Kens. It's a, it's a whole thing. I think there's going to be some darkness. I'm going to watch it. I think it's going to be so fun to watch. Yes. It is also National Grilled Cheese Sandwich Day. That's Ooh. our food of the day. So go get yourself a nice grilled cheese, maybe a tomato soup. Ah, oh, sounds great. Right? Um, yes. But yeah, that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. mid-19th century, German sociologist Karl Marx came up with a dictum used in reference to religion. He said that religion is the opium of the people. His quote has evolved over time, and it became ultimately the quote I learned, which is, religion is the opiate of the masses. And Marx argued that religion was constructed by people to ease the anxiety of life's uncertainties and to assign our role within the universe. Religion is supposed to make life a little easier to live. It's supposed to give you a moral compass to follow. It's supposed to make the prospect of death a lot less scary. And death and religion seem to go hand in hand. Religion is the opiate of the masses, and death is finality for the masses. So how do these things coincide, death and religion? And what can the Bible tell us about that? Something else the Bible can tell us about is how the most insidious often hide in plain sight. They use various disguises to blend in a wolf in sheep's clothing. So today's case takes us back to Tuesday, February 5th of 2002. And on this exact day, rapper Fat Joe releases his single, What's Love, featuring Ashanti. And the number one songs are You Got a Bad by Usher and How You Remind Me by Nickelback, which is, fun fact, Alexis's dad's favorite song. Nickelback is his favorite band. Such dad rock. It's such dad rock. I actually kind of love what Nickelback's doing. They're sort of like taking control of their narrative of being like... Dad rock? dad rock like everybody makes fun of them i actually love it i do too i love it i mean it's really fun music to bop to i don't know where this whole thing came from it's probably when avril lavigne started dating the front man exactly well they're laughing all the way to the bank so That's good right. for them movies john q and black hawk down are also raking in all the cash at the movie theaters and the setting for today's case is hudson wisconsin which is located within st croix county And according to Hudson's website, the city was nicknamed the Golden Rule City after a town initiative that was introduced by Mayor Rich O'Connor. It's a simple 11-word guide, Hudson's Gold Rule Initiative, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And the mayor gave some context. The Golden Rule is a principle of all major religions, including Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Native American spirituality, and secular ethics. And if you're Catholic, the golden rule can be found in chapter 7 in the book of Matthew. Do to others whatever you would have them do to you. This is the law and the prophets. So it's a kind of universal saying across religions, and that becomes kind of ironic throughout this episode. 
Absolutely. So we're going to Hudson and Hudson is a small town that has approximately 13,877 people. Well, this is according to the most recent census information. I'm sure that's gone up and down a few people. Sure. And residents of Hudson are friendly. They work really hard and they're church going and God fearing people. And we learned all about this area from our first degree Drew, who was born and raised in this very community. When Drew was growing up, his father was working at the mortuary science slash funeral directing industry. And this meant that death and all the implications that come along with it was something that Drew was very well versed in by the time he was in high school. So we asked him if he had any good stories that he could share with us. Oh, there's too many to count, that's for sure. Because it's, you know, been normalized in your household in terms of a discussion point, you know, a couple of things happen. One, you just become comfortable with the idea of death. Uh, it's not as scary, I think, even at a young age. And second of all, you know, it was really used as a kind of a scare tool in our house. Anything related to death, it was always something my dad could could discuss with us, you know, sometimes over dinner, you know. And most people now would get kind of a, a trigger or something. <laughs> be like, not while we're eating, but uh, it was kind of regular points. And of course, part of it, again, was being more scare tactic, like don't drink and drive. You could end up like this and just kind of respecting and, and revering the fact that it could end any any moment. And so it just became, you know, a, a point of kind of reflection at all times of uh, just uh, how easily life can be taken from you. For so many, regardless of religion, end-of-life ceremonies are among the most sacred. People hold very strong beliefs about death, and they hold strong beliefs about end-of-life rituals. The very eternity of their loved ones may depend on things being executed just so, very precisely. And families value being able to give their loved one a dignified and loving send-off into the afterlife, whatever that may look like to them in their religion. Morticians and funeral directors are essentially stewards for that emotional and spiritual journey for both the living and for the dead. It's pretty profound. If you're going you know, to do a casket funeral, open casket, and uh, you know, my dad was kind of a self-proclaimed proud um, you know, artist in a way uh, with folks with, uh, you know, makeup or hair or you know, trying to get this person, you know, a lot of times it's cancer patients. Um, trying to get this this person to look like they did to their loved ones, right? And so it's a it's really a an art form at a certain point. He took tremendous pride in it, and the other part was the science behind it and just the anatomy and uh, you know recognizing how to to make this person seem like they, they you know they were not uh, undergoing whatever they were undergoing at the time of their death. Being a mortician or funeral director also requires one to have the personality, the temperament, and the bedside manner to deal with grief-stricken people who are in the throes of emotional chaos or trauma. They need to be able to counsel clients through tough choices during their darkest hours. And those in the death industry also regularly deal with government officials like the county coroners and medical examiners and local religious leaders like priests, rabbis, et cetera, et cetera. And with each person having their own unique role in the end of life process, whether it be logistics, spiritual, or bureaucratic. Right. Death certificates need to be signed and estates need to be settled. That is not out of the ordinary by any means. Again, with with the type of things you're dealing with all the time, that's, you know, that that's that's the coroner's business and the funeral business is dealing with the coroners and you're dealing with clergy in the church. And it's a big triangle of people, you know, all the time and you're all doing eventually business together, right? Hudson being the small town that it is, it's probably no shock that everyone in the funeral business knew everyone else. And among the most prominent family funeral business in Hudson was the O'Connell funeral home. 
The original O'Connell funeral and undertaking was started in Hudson in 1926 by a man named Frank O'Connell, one of the first graduates of the University of Minnesota's Mortuary Science Program. In 1985, Frank's nephew, Tom O'Connell, with over 30 years of experience in the mortuary science profession, reintroduced the family business to Hudson. A graduate of the same University of Minnesota program that his uncle had completed, Tom opened a new, much more modern facility. By 2002, the business was being run by Tom's sons, two brothers, Mike and Dan O'Connell. And Dan O'Connell was someone Drew's father was acquainted with through the business, and all the things that come along with being in this field, they knew each other. Dan obviously worked in the funeral business. My dad had worked in the funeral business his entire life as well, um, and he's now retired. But he worked alongside Dan just a little bit and his father, Tom, at the O'Connell Funeral Home in Hudson. You know, it was, I'm sure, like a small, you know, knit community of folks who knew each other, especially in that business. I think you just kind of know people. And my dad said that he actually went to school at the U of M. University of Minnesota with Dan as well. Dan was a well-known figure in the town of Hudson. Everyone seemed to know him through business, church, or through his civic volunteer activities. He became an EMT in his senior year of high school before graduating with honors from the University of Minnesota after studying mortuary science, like his ancestors before him, essentially. And when Dan settled down and married his wife, Jenny, he decided it was time to start working towards taking over the family business where he worked under his father and alongside his brother. And in researching Dan O'Connell, this guy was really, really beloved, but not just by his friends and his family. Everybody in the town had something kind to say about this guy. And beyond that, people really respected him. Dan volunteered his free time at the Rotary Club, the YMCA, the Boy Scouts, and the Knights of Columbus. And after the 9-11 attacks, Dan and his brother Mike put up a spaghetti dinner for more than 2,000 people, raising $25,000 for New York fire, police, and ambulance services. This is just the kind of guy that Dan was. He was one of the good ones. Dan was just an outsized, you know, public figure, uh, essentially. Um, He was involved with every waking thing in Hudson ambulance services, uh, first responders. He was one of those guys. And, you know, community events, businessman, of course, the whole family was in the business. So extremely well-known, extremely well-liked. My dad just said, you know, he was extremely kind, extremely soft-spoken, also very dedicated to to the funeral business and the craft uh, that is uh, within, of course. So just an extremely well-rounded individual. The funeral business isn't just a business. It's not just scientific or anatomical or about selling caskets or selling plots. It takes a very specific and special kind of person to be able to handle all of the responsibilities and all the variables that go along with this, as well as seamlessly engage in the emotional labor that working in this world entails. A good funeral director is is so much more than, than the businessman. Uh, or the businesswoman. It's being able to connect with families who are grieving and, and be a, a shoulder for them and, and not be all um, business at all times. You know, make sure you got the death certificate to the, to the courthouse and obviously your, your hard skills that you learn in school for the actual embalming and everything else. It's, it's about, you know, either prearrangements or, or you're arranging things afterwards, everything from uh, flowers to lunch to you know, the casket itself or cremation or the venue. For obvious reasons, like the sacred aspects of how people view the afterlife, the funeral business and religion are very closely intertwined. And that's how Drew's father viewed his work also. 
my dad on that front, he's a pretty devout Christian man, so he's uh, pretty religious, and he kind of viewed himself as uh, helping usher, uh, you know, folks uh, into the next uh, realm, as it were, and wanted to be a conduit for that. The O'Connell family went to church, too, attending St. Patrick's Catholic Church. And the O'Connells had been going to the same church for generations, and Dan was no exception. Dan was pretty engaged with the St. Patrick's Church community, and he worked on the procession to the St. Patrick's Cemetery as well. But in 2000, there was a significant shakeup at the church that had many parishioners divided. A new clergy member was added to the church staff, a newly ordained 31-year-old priest named Father Ryan Erickson. And his ideologies were very traditional, very conservative, and much more extreme than anybody at St. Patrick's was used to. Like Jack said, we're talking very traditional. He essentially, this new priest, Father Erickson, denounced any Catholic who would be considered, quote unquote, lukewarm. He wanted people to go balls to the wall with their Catholicism. He wanted people to take everything literally. Like he wanted mass to be performed, at least partially in Latin, which is something most people in Wisconsin can't understand. And when he was delivering sermons, he often screamed, he often cried. And, you know, he was very impassioned, clearly. It was a visceralness that he kind of took on when he was delivering these sermons. And some of the parishioners felt inspired by it, but others were disturbed by it. And it also fell on Father Ryan to teach sex education at St. Patrick's School. And from his perspective, he insisted that anything having to do with sex was absolutely a mortal sin. Even the temptation of committing a sexual act was taboo. He was obsessed with the subjects of masturbation and abortion. And here's an example of the kind of things he said in weekly email newsletters to the parishioners. Quote, Even Sunday Mass is not safe from the immodest dress of some devils. They come to read, give out Holy Communion, etc., looking like an advertisement. Their immodest dress says to all present, I'm easy. Please go home and masturbate to my beautiful body. The sad thing is, some people do. So that's things showing up in people's inboxes on a weekly basis from Father Ryan Erickson. Yeah. It was definitely off-putting for some people. Yeah, it's very bizarre. And like Alexis said, some people loved him and some people did not like his vibe. And some people really thought his views were problematic, which, you know. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So... (laughs) And while he was really, really traditional in some of these ways, in other ways, he was actually kind of modern. He collected guns, he really liked to drink, and he would often grab beers with congregants or anybody who wanted to grab a drink with them. And a friend later described Father Erickson as a John Wayne fan, a man's man who loved to hunt and fish. He wore a gun under his robe and even wore it under his vestments at mass. Right. So going back to the O'Connell family, right? So as far as Dan O'Connell, you know, he brought his family to this church and whether they liked Father Ryan Erickson's style of preaching or not is something we're not 100% clear on, right? But in several reporting sources I found, it was said that Dan wasn't super religious. He kind of enjoyed the family traditions that went along with belonging to the church, right? Christmas, Easter, Sunday school for the kids, that kind of thing. But beyond that, Dan's experience with the church moved into professional territory as well because he worked with them quite a lot through his business. He often attended the church services preceding funerals that he was directing and had put together. And he was a staple at these burials. And, you know, he saw his clients all the way through this experience. 
he had another connection to St. Patrick's Church as well. He married his wife, Jenny, there. So he was involved with his church in several ways. Right. And Dan had a lot of responsibilities between work, family, and his volunteer activities. So it's no surprise that he wanted to bring on an intern apprentice to work with him at the O'Connell Funeral Home. And a 22-year-old University of Minnesota senior named James Ellison fit the bill for what Dan was really looking for. By February of 2002, James had been working at the O'Connell Funeral Home working towards a one-year internship requirement to receive a Wisconsin funeral director's license. And Dan, he really liked James. In fact, James was doing so well that he was supposed to start working at the O'Connell Funeral Home full-time after graduation. And it was reported that James took a lot of pride in his job, and like his boss Dan, he understood the importance of compassion involved in his line of work. So James grew up in Barron, Wisconsin, and was drawn to the funeral business because he wanted to help people. And at just 22 years old, he had his whole life ahead of him, with graduation only months away and a girlfriend that he wanted to marry someday. And while Drew, our first degree's dad, had personal connections to Dan, Drew himself had become friends with James, and in a very interesting way. I had more of a personal connection with James myself, so I can lay out a little bit of the story there. So I'm going to break this connection down for you to just make it a little easier. Drew had a high school best friend named Charlie. And through Charlie, Drew met James because Charlie's family basically hired James and allowed James to move into the house as like a student who was there to supervise the kids. He was one of my best friends growing up, still is one of my best friends today. His parents were both professors at the UW River Falls, uh, University of Wisconsin River Falls. And part of their focus for a number of years, at least as moms, I know, was world music. And then so, of course, that took them halfway around the world pretty frequently. Charlie and his family lived in a big, interesting house. And with Charlie's parents being taken around the world for work, they needed supervision around for the kids and also to help with this property. So they had a guest suite that they liked to fill with someone trustworthy who could also help out with stuff while they were gone. In fact, James Ellison's sister worked for the family first. James's sister was helping out uh, at their house for a while. And then uh, I can't remember exactly what circumstance it was, but she had told him that her, her brother, James, was available to do that kind of thing, too. And of course, James was going through the mortuary science program at the U of M and I believe was an intern at the O'Connell Funeral Home during that time as well in, in 2002. James moved into the house, and because Drew's best friend Charlie lived there, he'd gotten to know James pretty well. James often supervised and entertained the two boys at Charlie's house. What ended up happening is James got to move into their basement for long term, actually. Charlie said it was about a year and so he became quite close with the family uh, during that time, as any youngsters do. We were all hanging out quite a bit, and, and I got to know James that way because, you know, he'd always be over there and hanging out and just getting into trouble. Uh, and, of course, not when we were joking with James because, of course, he was there to lay down the law. No. <laughs> We'd play video games together. You know, we were eating together. We were just shooting the bull and, you know, very loyal, uh, very kind uh, person, never got angry, just hardworking had you know clear goals and ambitions and it was just a really great fit for for the family to to do that kind of job. In 2002, life was kind of idyllic in Hudson, Wisconsin. This is a community built on faith, on family, and on trusting and loving thy neighbor. Things were consistent. Things were stable. In fact, there hadn't been a murder in Hudson since 1978. 
22 years. However, the veneered facade of the city's safety was about to crack, undermining the very foundation, the golden rule, that this town is supposed to represent permanently. And things were never going to be the same. So the day was February 5th of 2002. It was a mundane Tuesday where mundane things were being done all over Hudson. You know, bills were being paid. People were clocking in and clocking out. Kids were at school. Just a normal Tuesday. And one such person who also had his own mundane errands to run of his own was the St. Croix County Medical Examiner named Marty Shanklin. It was around lunchtime that Shanklin realized that he needed to run to the O'Connell Funeral Home to collect Dan's signature for a particular death certificate. He arrived at the O'Connell Funeral Home at around 1.30, and he'd been there a million times before, and, you know, this wasn't supposed to be any different. In fact, Shanklin was friends with Dan O'Connell, and he knew him pretty well. And given his line of work, they interacted constantly. This was routine, and Shanklin, the medical examiner, probably didn't expect this day to be significant at all. But unfortunately, it would be. Because as prepared as you'd think a medical examiner would be to encounter death, nothing could prepare Marty Shanklin for what he was about to find just inside the O'Connell Funeral Home that afternoon. At 1.40 p.m., Marty Shanklin called 911 to report what he'd found once he walked into Dan O'Connell's office. He walked into a nightmare. He found both Dan O'Connell and his young assistant, 22-year-old James Ellison, killed in a bloody and chilling scene. The double slaying marked the first homicides in Hudson since 1978. And those closest to James and Dan were notified of the tragedy, and many of whom reported to the scene immediately. Then the secretary of St. Patrick's Church received a call at 2 p.m. to send a priest to the funeral home to help console family members who were gathering there. The scene was cordoned off with crime scene tape. And the police, with guns drawn, worked to clear the building to make sure that the killer wasn't still on site. The parking lot of the O'Connell Funeral Home was filled with emergency vehicles and pandemonium ensued. The lives of both Dan O'Connell and James Ellison's families were forever changed that day. The suddenness of what happened. Nothing could have prepared them for the abrupt, sharp loss. Later on the evening of the murders took place, a friend of Dan O'Connell's wife, Jenny, called St. Patrick's Church and asked to see if a priest could go over to the O'Connell house to offer Jenny some comfort and spiritual guidance in light of the sudden tragedy she was faced with. And they obliged, with Father Erickson arriving at the O'Connell home around 7 p.m. Sure, they sent the divisive priest, but in that moment, I'm sure Jenny didn't care. Maybe she wasn't even present. I mean, I think if I had been subjected to a loss like that, I would be checked out, you know, but it's a nice gesture, isn't it? So he went, Father Erickson showed up there. He wasn't there long, but he offered the family condolences and recited a prayer before leaving. And as word of what happened continued to spread through town, the shockwaves continued to reverberate. On the day of the double homicide, Drew remembers learning the news from his father. And I didn't fully put all the pieces together and Till just a hair after, but uh, it was definitely nighttime that day that I found out uh, after school. I was in my living room. My dad had gotten a phone call, clearly getting some details on something that happened. And, you know, I was kind of just staring at him and I was picking up on a few things. And I think he got off the phone and just kind of laid it out for me. And I had to kind of sit down and be like, Are you kidding me? Like, we knew that in general, like that, that James was working there and 
So yeah, the, the news had come in that, that night and it was just real heavy, real heavy stuff. And it took me a while to, to compute, you know, everybody in, in, in America in, in a small town situation is probably the same. You know, you think like, that's not something that happens. And this is, this is crazy. Like two people, really? Like, and they're both, we both know them. Drew couldn't believe that James, this kind, lovable guy who was living at his best friend Charlie's house, the guy who hung out with him all the time and played video games with him, this guy that was months away from graduating college, James had been murdered. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program. And it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first-degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor Meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor Meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Stodd, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 
10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. The area exploded with media coverage profiling the bizarre crime, and those who knew Dan O'Connell and James Ellison were interviewed and gushed about the character and kindness of each of these men. Murders like this just weren't supposed to happen here. No murders were supposed to happen here, and none had for 22 years. And no one knew what to make of these sad, strange, and terrifying circumstances. No one knew who could have done this or why. Even as a you know a kid in high school, you know freshman year. I don't know if you know necessarily how to, to comprehend that. Uh, it's certainly different than, you know, how you might today, but it's all the same, you know, at the end of the day, especially the circumstances, again, just being so random, uh, seemingly random at that time. Drew was obviously shocked and he was obviously devastated. This all felt way too close to home. We're talking about the first two homicides occurring within this community in the last 22 years. And Drew and his father each knew one of the victims personally. So who could do something like this? Why would somebody do this? And would this case ever be solved? But you know the drill. we got to go back. On the heels of the double murder at the O'Connell Funeral Home, shock reverberated through Hudson. And chaos did, too. Dan O'Connell was a 39-year-old father of two and husband of 13 years, and now he was gone. And his ambitious young assistant, James Ellison, his life had been cut ridiculously short. He was just 22. Everyone in town had a connection to one of them. Dan O'Connell was the person who was supposed to be consoling the bereaved through their grief and handling their funerals, but now someone else would have to handle his. And when it comes to James Ellison... His loved ones were left to pick up the pieces and mourn the loss of a life lost so young and so senselessly. His future had been snatched from him, and his ambition and dreams had been squandered. I've been close to the funeral business my whole life, just through my father. And, you know, it it doesn't change the gravitas uh, of it. It certainly morphs the, the view a little bit. And I've had some, you know, really close cousins that were like brothers and sisters pass away in following years, kind of not too long after that. Uh, as well. So it's kind of been just around me for a long time in various ways. James was only 22, just the, the ripe young age of 22. And it's just heartbreak, heartbreaking, you know, because it's like you realize just how much more potential you know, somebody like that had. At the crime scene, the police response was massive. But in contrast, the information provided to the public was minimal. When investigators first arrived at the O'Connell Funeral Home, it took 30 minutes to clear the building to make sure it was safe and that the killer or killers were no longer on the premises. Dan's brother Mike came to the scene when he first heard the commotion, and Dan's parents were vacationing in Florida when they received the heartbreaking news about their son. Crime lab officials descended on the scene looking for any forensic evidence that might leave authorities to a suspect. But evidence found inside Dan's office where the shootings occurred was really scant. So officers closed the street outside O'Connell's funeral home and canvassed nearby homes going door to door seeking leads. 
anyone or anything who might have seen or heard something. And they asked a nearby elementary school to keep staff and students inside for a short time, fearing that like a shooter was around and it was an active shooter situation. So police later towed two cars, later identified as Dan and James's from the funeral home's parking lot, which is so sad. We saw that happening with these Idaho murders. Yeah. Uh, when they finally towed the the victims' cars, it was like a gut wrenching thing to see. You know, it's 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 awful. And behind every door that investigators knocked on, they were met with complete shock. You know, no one in this community thinks that there's ever going to be a murder because there hasn't been one. No one knew who would do this. No one had anything to add. And no one knew who would do this to these two guys who were squeaky clean, who were beloved, who were kind, hardworking, and had integrity. It was a mystery. Being small town, you know, Midwest here, it was pretty gripping, of course. You're talking about two extremely stand-up people with no outward skeletons in their closet. It just seemed uh, super bizarre in every way. Autopsies revealed that Dan and James had both died from gunshot wounds. Shell casings were recovered from the scene, and they'd come from a 9mm handgun. And investigators observed no evidence of a break-in or forced entry, and there also appeared to be no sign of a struggle. This crime, by all accounts, was inexplicable. What could the motive for this crime possibly be? The investigation began immediately. The police were going to dump every resource that they had into this case, which starts with building a timeline. It's especially perplexing because it was in the middle of the day. You know, this happened, yeah. the 911 call came in before two o'clock. Right. So it's like, who's going to a funeral home to do something like this? In the middle of the day in with the, middle the sun of the day. shining and like nothing to hide you really. clean business. Like it's not a front for anything. It's just, it's a shocking crime. Yeah. So to build this timeline, the police retraced Dan and James' final movements hours before the murders occurred. As reported by Nancy No for the Pioneer Press, James had a normal morning that day. According to his classmates, he attended a mortuary science class at the University of Minnesota, and that class ended at 9 a.m. In that day, one classmate remembered that he wore brown leather boots, khaki pants, and an orange long-sleeved polo-style shirt, and a navy pea coat and jacket. They described him as being stylish all the time. His hair was gelled. He was ready for a day. And outside of class, they all talked about an upcoming exam, and eventually he excused himself, saying he had to get along to make it to work at the O'Connell Funeral Home. So he was having a normal morning, talking to his friends. He was dressed nicely. He was excited to get to work. He was prepping for an exam. He was living a normal, enthusiastic life of a 22-year-old, and it makes it all the more sad that it was all taken away in an instant. And as far as what Dan did the morning before the murders, the police learned that Dan had an insurance meeting in the neighboring town of Baldwin. He left that meeting at around 945, explaining that he had a guy that he had to meet back in Hudson before leaving the meeting. And he didn't elaborate on who this guy was. So who was he? Was it the murderer? Was this guy that he was supposed to meet involved in all of this at all? Or was this meeting unrelated to what happened? Nobody knows. And that's what they're trying to find out, right? So in the days following the murders, the police set up a roadblock in front of the funeral home. So they wanted to ask people, had they seen anything? You know, what car had been spotted in the parking lot? Had anyone shown up there? They stopped more than 300 cars in this area to see if anyone had noticed anything suspicious the day the murders occurred. And then a $100,000 reward was offered for information leading to information that could help reveal who this person was. I mean, they're trying to add any incentive that they can. So investigators did eventually receive a tip 
from a resident who lived by the funeral home, and it was a good one. So the witness had seen a white male wearing a light T-shirt, kind of unusual for February in Wisconsin because it's like below zero. He was also wearing blue pants and a baseball cap. So that's some shit, right? Like, Mm -hmm. that's odd because everyone is wearing parkas at that time pretty much. You know, it's, it's insanely cold at that time. This guy, he was in front of the funeral home at around 115. And remember, the call went in at around 140. So this is suspicious, and this could be a really good lead. The witness also said that this man got into a white sedan when he drove away. So while the details related to this tip were vague, it was something. It was the most they'd had so far. And it's at this point that the Hudson police chief announced that they were looking for this white male with a medium build wearing a white t-shirt and a baseball cap. And they hoped more information about this figure would materialize, but it didn't. So they were back to the drawing board. Right. And by all accounts, you know, law enforcement followed standard procedure as it related to ruling out those closest to the families of the victims. Dan and James's families and friends were all interviewed I'm sure at length, I'm sure it was painful for all of them, but they were all ultimately ruled out. Meanwhile, the rumor mill in the small town was churning, and as days with no arrest of a suspect continued to pass, theories and speculation kind of ran rampant. Speculation definitely swirled, and one of the big things was that it was just circulating rumor, but it was like, oh, you know, some people... Like drug dealers, they like to maybe dip their joints in formaldehyde to to like increase the high or something. It was very much like, oh, uh, is that a thing? You know, and like, you know, of course, at the time I was a freshman in high school, it's like, this is a deadly poison. So we cannot say this enough. Do not do this. Do not try this. As Drew said, formaldehyde is a deadly poison and has no business on cigarettes or anywhere other than a funeral home or a laboratory. And we know it sounds kind of out there, but this really was the first promising lead that law enforcement had when it came to this case at all. The police did explore this formaldehyde theory. So here's the deal. Apparently, some dealers lace marijuana with formaldehyde. It is, in fact, a thing that some people do. But like Jack so pointedly said, don't do it. Don't do any of these things. This is a horrible thing to do to your body, etc. But anyways... That being said, I know this sounds super out there, but there had in fact been other break-ins at mortuaries in this area for this very reason. So this was a very interesting lead and a promising one to explore. Turns out the neighboring city of St. Paul, Minnesota had been dealing with similar break-ins where embalming fluid had been stolen. And this was happening in months before the slaying. So apparently formaldehyde is used to make marijuana more potent. That's the purpose of using it with weed. So that's a thing, I guess. But to this point, there had only been burglaries when no one was home. There had been no violence during these robberies and no attacks, and they mostly happened at night. So there are some similarities in the location of where these attacks are occurring, But obviously not because someone was killed in the commission of this hypothetical robbery, right? So the question is, could these same burglars be responsible for the murder of Dan and James? And if so, were they escalating? And that's what the police were wondering. But that was kind of ruled out quickly because when they checked inventory of the embalming fluid and of the formaldehyde at the O'Connell funeral home, it appeared that nothing was missing because they kept careful inventory. The next theory seemed to have much more momentum behind it. 
So it turns out that several local funeral homes in the area and all over Wisconsin had been sent threatening letters from this religious cult who were very, very against embalming practices. And one of these threatening letters had been, in fact, sent to Dan at the O'Connell Funeral Home. The cult's official name was called Rest of Jesus, and the leader of this cult believed that the embalming was desecrating to the body and people should only be wrapped in a white sheet when they die. So a portion of the letter that Dan received from Rest of Jesus read, quote, Thus saith the Lord, because you have heard not the words of the Lord, I take from you your sons and daughters into early graves and prepare for burial yourself. Amen. So, I mean, I don't even understand what that means. Is this a threat or is this some Bible verses? What is it? It's creepy no matter what. The thing is, I'll say about religious texts, I'm not religious and I very much respect those who are, but some of the wor- some of the biblical readings sometimes feel like a riddle. Oh yeah. And I'm like, like this sounds like a riddle to me. I'm like, is it a threat or is it a blessing? <laughs> Am I going to try to solve the yeah. solve the riddle? Like, are you working with a Zodiac killer or is this a blessing or is this a threat? Like, it's really hard to know what the objective is here. I was reading it and I'm like, I literally don't know what I just read, but sure. Sounds like a threat to me. It's word salad. Like a lot of these like religious, like these religious threats, I'm going to be more clear. It sounds like with those word salads where I'm like, you just want me to be afraid, but you don't know why. Yeah. Am I supposed to rearrange the words in this to make sense? (laughs) Totally. Right. So the police find out about this. And obviously, both of these theories would make anyone in the funeral business, whether we're dealing with embalming, formaldehyde thieves, or religious zealots who want to kill you because you're they don't agree with embalming, imagine working in the funeral business in Hudson at this time. Well, we don't have to imagine because Drew's father was, and Drew was there to witness his father's response. Of course, there is worry here, and people working this business are wondering, am I safe? And did Drew's dad worry that he was unsafe? And the answer is, yeah, everyone was scared. Absolutely. You know, and he was still in business then, and I'm pretty sure the the entire, you know, local funeral community was certainly uh, up in, in a tizzy. It still goes back to the same, you know, feeling, I think, the idea of... Are people coming to knock off and and rob these places because they think they're an easy target? I don't think some of that theory proves true or holds any water necessarily. But again, as as this happens, you know, you you think about every angle. And yeah, I, I definitely remember, you know, some of that feeling of just like being a little bit more on alert. The police took a really hard look at the rest of Jesus' religious group members. And while a lot of their beliefs were really, really strange, the police eventually dismissed them, labeling them as strange but harmless, which I kind of like. That's a good label. Like, I'll be, I think I'll like that for myself. <laughs> yeah, I actually read an article. I just didn't want to steal what they said. They, and I'm sorry, I'm not going to quote the article, but it'll be in the sources at the end. Harmless eccentrics is what they call them. Oh. Harmless eccentrics. I was like, oh, that's so good. But I that's plagiarism. I can't take it. So I just label them as strange. But I like strange but harmless. Strange but harmless or harmless eccentrics. All good. We will obviously um, cite the source. Of course. So they're not the perpetrators and neither were these drug dealers. So who the hell was it? They're back to the drawing board yet again. And this is disheartening because they're thinking they're going to solve this thing right away because this is the most high-profile case this 
community has ever experienced. And hitting one roadblock after the next is not good for this police department because the pressure is immense. So naturally, at this point, the police have to consider whether Dan or James could maybe have had any personal conflicts to explore. Maybe a lead could be found there. Maybe there's adultery. Maybe there's a love triangle, a gambling problem, drug use, debts, family issues. Maybe the funeral business was a front to something. But each of these possibilities were explored, and there was nothing in either of Dan or James's lives that offered any potential motives as to who would want to hurt them. These guys were about as good as they fucking get, volunteering, helping people, loyal to their partners, no debts. There's nothing here. There's no strings to pull on. So one dead end after the next. And law enforcement at this point was so desperate that they even looked at an Iowa cold case back in 1997. And this is where a retired mortician was murdered in a small town. And in this case, Boyd Novinger, a retired mortician in the 70s, was killed in his own home. And while this case was also unsolved, when they took a closer look, there were really few similarities to suggest that there was a connection between the two crimes. As the investigation is going on in the background, those closest to Dan and James were not only mourning, but they were dealing with the very raw and real tangible aspects of losing them in the logistics that all of that entails, right? So at the time of this murder, James had been still living at the home of Drew's best friend, Charlie. This means that like they all witnessed someone come and get his stuff and pack it up. Yeah. And, you know... I think those aspects are so often forgotten about. Like when people are murdered, like people who never expected to have to have to come pack up their loved one's things and get this, you know, basically child at 22's affairs in order. And I think that's a really traumatizing thing to witness. And that's what Drew and Charlie were seeing, right? Their funerals also needed to be arranged. And These were two guys who worked in the funeral business. You know, the irony, the pain surrounding all this was awful. And Drew, our first degree, would ultimately attend both funerals, James's and Dan O'Connell's. I had gone to both both of their funerals, you know, the one for Dan and Hudson, and then James was back home, I believe, in Barron. James's services were held at a chapel in his hometown of Barron, Wisconsin. He was remembered by those who loved him as kind, hardworking, and taken away way too soon. And his friends remembered him as being stylish, happy, and caring. And when James decided to become a mortician, he said, I'm so proud that I can help people at the worst time in their life. James's family and his girlfriend walked in as the service was about to begin, and they each touched his casket as they walked by, leaning on each other for support. Everybody in that room was obviously in disbelief and really just at a loss. And a red candle glowed on the stage amongst heaps of flowers at James's service, and a pastor read verses chosen by James's family. More than 50 university mortuary science students, the one from Minnesota, the same program that Dan O'Connell and his whole family had attended, I mean, they had all really gotten to love James, and they took a bus as well as the faculty did, to attend the service. They chartered it from Minneapolis to Barron to say goodbye. I mean, James was obviously a super important person in this community, and I think everyone was stunned. They were both so sad, but James, of course, a little more sad for me at the time just because I knew him. And, and you know, they were both open caskets, and it was just, it's just hard, it's hard to see, you know, somebody, somebody in there. Even me having seen, you know, hundreds of, hundreds of folks uh, in the same state, but 
and of course, different circumstances make them look different. It just was just a, a big mess. Dan O'Connell's father, Tom, actually came out of his retirement to handle the funeral arrangements for his own son. Oh, that breaks my heart, man. It's like he horrible. handed his business to his son and it's like, I'm done. Dealing with death as a funeral director, you can do that, right? I got this. But your yeah. son? Your son. Well, I'm sure it's like you have to almost emotionally detach yourself from it while you're handling it for other people. It's like doctors, you know, it's like you have to or else you won't be able to survive. But like when you're handling that for your son, it's just like you said, the irony is like really fucking soul crushing. Totally. And something we got to point out real quick in all the reporting, you know, a lot of the reporting said that James was kind of the forgotten victim, quote unquote. Because Dan, you know, he was older, he had a business, he had a family, that he got a lot more attention. And we're trying to be as balanced as we can here. James had so many more years left to live. Like, I can't believe that, that, that you know, the media had favored the story of Dan more than James. But, you know, we're here to give James his due, truly. It's pretty awesome for the sake of our story and for what we can share with all of you that Drew attended both. Yeah. So shifting to Dan's funeral, it was considered the largest in Hudson's history. And the service took place at St. Patrick's Church, the very church where Dan had been a congregant all of his life, the very church where he'd married his wife, Jenny, the very church where he volunteered, where Dan O'Connell was a fixture at his church for personal and business reasons. Everyone there knew him, and they were all there. The entire community was there to help lay him to rest amidst this tragic loss. Thousands of people crowded into St. Patrick's Church to pay their respects to Dan O'Connell. Someone prominent like Dan was, it was just the massive. It was crazy. It was in the biggest Catholic church in Hudson, and it was packed to the gills, of course, with first responders, and it was just uh, something to behold. The service lasted for more than two hours with several local speakers. Father Ryan Erickson concelebrated the funeral mass for Dan O'Connell that day. And you'll remember that was uh, the guy with all of those uh, pretty extreme beliefs that we were talking about. The gun-toting priest. He had a gun under his little robe that day. Yes, exactly. And I'm sure it was under his robe this day. He wore white vestments and he spoke stoically and methodically as he delivered scripture readings during the ceremony. And we wish that we had something to play for you that day, but media was banned inside the church. Dan was pretty devout Catholic, so he was at that church that Erickson had presided over regularly. So I know they knew each other, you know, quite well. Just And of course, running funerals, you know, it's synonymous with you're going to meet the clergy and you're going to have you know, they're going to be common sights to each other, I think, over time. So beyond the normal sadness associated with funeral services, I mean, they're pretty miserable. The grief was compounded by the fact that the killer or killers of these two beloved men was still out there roaming the streets. No one had any idea who did this. And the perpetrator could be anyone or everyone. And those in attendance of these funeral services couldn't help but wonder whether the killer could be someone in that very room, perhaps someone even sitting next to them. So the mayor of Hudson gave one of the eulogies. He said, if you knew Dan, you didn't just like him, you loved him. 61 emergency vehicles, including an ambulance, fire truck, and police cruisers led the funeral procession into St. Patrick's Cemetery where O'Connell was buried. And after the memorial services had come and gone, the days slipped by. It was just a few days, then weeks, and then months. 
And it started to dawn on everyone in this town, everyone connected to this case, that it seemed to be going cold. As the days went by, there was just nothing. And of course, when that happens, and there's continues to be nothing, every you know day, every week from there on becomes just a little harder to stomach. Everything was cold. I kept thinking to myself, I'm like, man, it was the longest time. And I think it was, yeah, it was only just a couple of years. I mean, it, you know, talking about it now, it doesn't seem very long, but it just felt like eons because all you wanted to do is have some information on it. Hundreds of suspects and witnesses were interviewed by the Hudson police. But regardless of their diligence, police found themselves no closer to identifying the person responsible. Right. And time kept passing. And before anyone realized, two years had passed since Dan and James had been killed at the O'Connell funeral home. But the pressure on the police to solve this case did not lessen. In fact, the pressure intensified. So in April of 2004, two fresh detectives, Jeff Knopps and Sean Petty, were assigned to the cold case. And they were going to look at every shred of evidence with fresh eyes. They were going to re-interview everyone, and they were going to solve this case. They were determined. I think we had heard, and I think the papers just hit it, was they had hired a special investigator, you know, some big outfit out of a different state. And they were going to look into this closer again. They were going to redo and, and walk through things. And, and of course, everybody's, you know, ears perked up a little bit. And while the case continued to be a priority, an unfortunate reality for law enforcement is that the cases, they don't stop coming. It's not like you get one and you get all this time to work on it. They keep piling up. New crimes are reported and investigated every day. And they're important too. And such was the case in the spring of 2004, when a disturbing report came across the desk of one of the Hudson police detectives. And it seemingly had nothing to do with the O'Connell funeral home murders. In fact, it didn't involve murder at all. Rather, disturbing accusations against St. Patrick's priest, Father Ryan Erickson. What could this man of the cloth, what could Father Ryan Erickson have possibly done? And we've talked about this dude a couple times throughout the episode. He was that new divisive gun-toting priest at Hudson St. Patrick's Church who sent those really weird raging emails about scantily clad devils in church. This was the priest at the church that Dan O'Connell's family had attended, the church where he married his wife, Jenny. And in fact, Father Erickson was that priest who recited all those scriptures during Dan O'Connell's funeral. He was the same Father Erickson who had gone to Dan's home the night of the murders to offer comfort to his wife. Right. And we warned you, part two is coming. But I want to remind you about where we started this episode. We started this episode talking about chapter seven in the book of Matthew, where we find the reference to the golden rule. Ironically, the topic of false prophets also comes up in the very same chapter. And here is what we can take away from that. Quote, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but underneath are ravenous wolves. This story is far too layered and far too mind-blowing and far too, you know, painful, frankly, to be shoehorned into one single episode. So, Like we said, we're sad to have to say goodbye for now, but you better be back next week for part two. We already told you, if you're on Patreon, you'll get it sooner, but it is worth the wait. The culmination of this case, the truth about what happened is among the most shocking I've ever, I've ever seen. 
And you don't have to just take my word or Jack's word for it. Just ask Drew. And you know what? I would actually argue that it was climactic because of the feverish ending to it. And of course, hearing the details after the fact, right? That was when we learned what was happening. St. Patrick's Church, the very institution with a community that everyone leaned on as their sense of their morality compass, helping to guide them through the most trying times of their lives. This is an institution utilized for marking the beginning of relationships like weddings, the beginning of life when babies are baptized and christened, and the end of life when loved ones die. This place becomes a point of intrigue, a focal point of this entire case. In part two, the church will no longer represent the momentous and sacred sanctuary it once was, but instead something much more sinister. Well, huge thank you to Drew for being our first degree for this episode. He's obviously going to stick around with us next week. And if you can't wait to listen until next week, you can sign up for our Patreon for early access to all of our two-parters. Obviously, an extra episode of True Crime Stories every single week, video content, and so much more. Yes. (laughs) And you guys better be back for part two because, oh my God, this story. Am I right? It's fucking crazy. So... Remember, everyone, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close, but not that close. Sources. So this episode was written by me, music courtesy of my BFF, Jared Monaco, and producing by Caitlin Cleveland. Love you, Caitlin. And we're going to include the complete list of sources at the end of the second part of this episode. So listen then. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.